think there's, um, you know, there's, there's a bunch of things that we're focused on for the account executive, and it's really about sort of building a relationship. But I do think there's, there are a lot of, of opportunities for being intelligent with where and how you engage customers. I think there's, there's actually a lot of, um, you know, a lot of data that exists out there that is, uh, there's too much of it for a person to make sense of. There's too much to even categorize before you go to make sense of it. And so I think there's this this opportunity where you know LLMs and, and AI broadly is is great at summarization. It's, it's one of the strong points. And so I think when you look at at kind of areas where there's just this kind of fire hose of of data for folks, mm-hmm. um, those are kind of the opportunities where I think there's there's a lot of upside. And and I think the other thing that's that's been really exciting about AI for me personally is looking through this lens of of automating kind of pieces of a job. Whereas if you look before and, you know, existing enterprise software, Workday, Salesforce, you know, ServiceNow and these companies, mm-hmm. it's really um, more of a, a kind of historical transaction log of things that a person has done. It's sort of almost like the work about the work. You don't actually log into these products all that often to do the work. Um, the work happens in other tools. It happens in meetings, et cetera. And so I think one of the really interesting you know, opportunities in, in AI is that you can actually look, and, and this is this is what we did when we were, were first thinking about uh, sort of the, the ideas that became Poggio was like, literally, what does a seller do all day? What are like the discrete tasks that they go about day to day? And kind of came up with a thesis for which parts of those are automatable and which aren't. Um, and I actually think the latter question is, is um, is an underrated and actually potentially more important question, which is what are the pieces of a process that a person has to be there? Um, and I think when you look through that lens, there's there's still this gigantic list of things that AI can can automate. And it's really about how do you take those off of someone's plate to give them leverage for the piece that is uniquely human or requires uniquely requires a human to be doing. So I think that's that's the lens that we've looked at. And I think when you apply that across not even just sales, that it, it, it's applicable in, in every job because um, it's the nature of automation. Um, but I think that's that's been the really interesting part of the whole life. All right, welcome to episode six of the East Peak podcast, uh, where we interview the operators, leaders, and startup founders that make the uh, go-to-market and tech world go round. Um, today, I have the privilege of interviewing Matt Slotnick, uh, co-founder and CEO of uh, Pogeo Labs. Uh, welcome, Matt. Hey, Stuart. Good to, glad to be here. Glad to have you as well. Okay, so um, maybe to get started... Um, how would you like to introduce yourself and maybe just a quick uh, blurb about uh, what, what Poggio Labs is? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, yeah, so I'm Matt, co-founder CEO of Poggio Labs. Um, Poggio Labs is an AI sales workspace. Uh, we have built a product for sales reps that accelerates um, the end-to-end uh, workflow of a deal from initial outreach to close. And we've, uh, we've put a bunch of work into taking uh, the power of LLMs and bringing them to sales reps. Very cool. So, um, so far on these podcasts I've done, um, they've been concentrated a lot of times with like domain specialists, whether it's, um, people have had the privilege of working with like enablement and marketing and elsewhere, but 
Um, one of the reasons I really wanted to bring you on is, um, you know, because you have this surface area with so many salespeople, I thought it would be so interesting to bring on because, you know, other companies I've worked with and advised, it's very often, you know, technical founders, and then they um, kind of begrudgingly get one of them gets pulled into doing founder led sales, they like learn the ropes and then kind of figure it out. But because your product is serving uh, sellers and sales leaders, um, you know, the questions I'm seeing you ask in LinkedIn as you're kind of semi building in public is super interesting. Um, kind of just seeing someone navigate the idea maze as an outsider for the sales world. So um, really excited to have that conversation. Um, so maybe uh, before we dive into that and some of the most interesting things you learned, um, you know, I know you've kind of lived all over the country and you, you've, you've had uh, lots of variances in your career so far, everything from like iBanking to Google. Um, I know you, you grew up in upstate New York, but how did you come to end up here on the West Coast and end up in startup life? Yeah, so I, um, I went to school in Boston. I, I originally from upstate New York. We moved around a bunch growing up, ended up back in upstate New York before, before going to Boston for school. Um, during college, uh, decided about halfway through that I wanted to be an investment banker and um, ended up doing that. Uh, just just so happened uh, that the firm I worked at, a firm called Shea & Company, which was a Boston and San Francisco-based uh, investment bank, uh, was focused entirely on enterprise software. And so I kind of came in. I was like, hey, I want to be an investment banker, was doing enterprise software exclusively, and pretty quickly um, realized that I loved enterprise software. And so that sort of changed the trajectory of what I'd been thinking of doing, which prior to that was kind of pure finance and thought I'd go work at a hedge fund in Manhattan for the rest of my life. Um, but, you know, really fell in love with enterprise software. And so the, the kind of progression of my career afterwards was really kind of based on this idea of, well, if you if you like software and you really like these companies, uh, how you get closer and closer to the products and the companies and the people. And so that sort of took me from, from investment banking uh, to venture capital. So I joined Norwest Venture Partners, uh, moved from Boston to, to uh, San Francisco for that, and spent uh, three and a half years uh, investing in early stage software companies. And uh, there kind of developed a, a relative expertise in sort of infrastructure, security, developer tools, quite technical products. Uh, did that for three and a half years, uh, got to the point that I, I really had to decide, like, hey, do I want to be a VC for the rest of my life or not? And uh, wasn't ready to take that uh, take that jump at, at that point. So ended up joining Google Cloud uh, on a product team and spent uh, close to four years there working in a, a variety of roles, sort of product focused, but, but really kind of spanning the business from uh, M&A, strategic partnerships, um, had the opportunity to actually build a business unit from scratch at GCP. Um, and and really, uh, you know, thought I'd be there for two years, ended up being there for four and, and along the way had the idea for for what then became Poggio. Um, and for me, I think the common thread, um, you know, a lot of these experiences sort of make sense when you look in reverse. But for me, it was really I, I like enterprise software and I want to kind of take this one step at a time and, and go in a direction of what feels interesting. And for me, that was software and how I was sort of practicing that on a day to day basis, whether it was a banker, investor product, M&A, and now as a founder, sort of um, wasn't really optimizing for that. And so it, it kind of brought me from interesting opportunity to interesting opportunity. And and here we are. Love it. That's pretty cool. Um, going from uh, iBanking to being exposed and learning the ropes with 
enterprise software and then being in the world of VC and learning about supporting sellers. So um, very cool. So, um, you know, pivoting into that, you know, I know we, in your blurb, we just talked about, you know, how you're supporting sellers and things like that. Um, and we talk about some of the discrete use cases and stuff as you expand your offering. But what are some of the things like when you're querying LinkedIn and you're asking peers or people like me that you're talking to, like, what are some of the things you like some of the most like non-obvious things or most surprising things you found in talking to sellers and go-to-market professionals so far? Yeah, I think there's there's a couple things. Um, one, I wouldn't necessarily say is a surprise, but I think people underestimate um, really the core of the sales job is about relationships. I think people have this idea of of a seller as someone that kind of shows up with a bag and there's a product in a bag and you, you just kind of almost... Um, like some people think you you're sort of tricking your customers into buying things and and i think one of the things that you you realize very quickly is very few products and industries operate that way um it's really about trust and relationships and i think when when you look at sales in that way i think it's a it's a very different take than i think the average person would have on it um especially i i think you know not to pick on on sort of engineers and things like that but i think you go to you go to engineers at some of these big companies and you know i was at google and i think you ask an engineer what a salesperson does and they really don't have much of an idea. And, and I think as, as we've you know talked to, you know, now hundreds and hundreds of sales reps, it's, it's really about, you know, how do I show up and, and earn the trust of my customer to really solve a problem for them? And, and that's how you sell. Uh, and, and it's really not this transactional, you know, show up and sell it and move on to the next one. The, the world doesn't really work like that anymore. Totally makes sense. I think that's a trap that a lot of people have gotten into when they prescribe, whether it's for SDRs or higher volume sales, this kind of outreach sales loft Apollo thing where it's just like, oh, you know, an input is fungible, like an email is an email is an email and more should be more, should see more output. But I think that's a big reason you're seeing like response rates plummet because it's just crowding out the space because it does come back to that relationship and like earning the right to have the conversation for sure. Um, yeah. So... Obviously, you're uh, taking advantage of the explosion in like uh, the LLM space that's occurred. Really, you know, as an outsider, it seems like it's it only like broke into my personal awareness a year ago now. Um, but like, obviously, uh, many people have talked about how you know the LLM paradigm has the capacity to you know disrupt, if not change, selling in a pretty major way. Um, what other areas do you think are like ripe for disruption in selling or observations you've had where you're like, as an outsider, like, how is this still the case? Like, I really think there's a, there's an opportunity there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's, um, you know, there's, there's a bunch of things that we're focused on for the account executive and it's really about sort of building a relationship. But I do think there's, there are a lot of, of opportunities for being intelligent with where and how you engage customers. I think there's, there's actually a lot of, um, you know, a lot of data that exists out there that is, uh, there's too much of it for a person to make sense of. There's too much to even categorize before you go to make sense of it. And so I think there's this this opportunity where, you know, LLMs and, and AI broadly is, is great at summarization. It's, it's one of the strong points. And so I think when you look at, at kind of areas where there's just this kind of fire hose of, of data for folks, mm -hmm. um, those are kind of the opportunities where I think there's there's a lot of upside. And and I think the other thing that's that's been really exciting about AI for me personally is looking through this lens of of automating 
kind of pieces of the job. Whereas if you look before and, you know, existing enterprise software, Workday, Salesforce, you know, ServiceNow and these companies, mm -hmm. it's really um, more of a, a kind of historical transaction log of things that a person has done. It's sort of almost like the work about the work. You don't actually log into these products all that often to do the work. Um, the work happens in other tools. It happens in meetings, et cetera. And so I think one of the really interesting you know, opportunities in, in AI is that you can actually look, and, and this is this is what we did when we were, were first thinking about uh, sort of the, the ideas that became Poggio was like, literally, what does a seller do all day? What are like the discrete tasks that they go about day to day? Um, and, and kind of came up with a thesis for which parts of those are automatable and which aren't. Um, and I actually think the latter question is, is, um, is an underrated and actually potentially more important question, which is what are the pieces of a process that a person has to be there? Um, and I think when you look through that lens, there's, there's still this gigantic list of things that AI can, can automate. And it's really about how do you take those off of someone's plate to give them leverage for the piece that is uniquely human or requires uniquely requires a human to be doing. So I think that's, that's the lens that we've looked at. And I think when you apply that across, not even just sales, it, it, it's applicable in, in every job because um, it's the nature of automation. Um, but I think that's that's been the really interesting part of LLMs to me. Interesting. Yeah, I really like your comment about like the work about work because I was, uh, yeah, just just uh, the other day we were talking about um, an earlier stage startup uh, in this investor's portfolio and they were talking about the board meeting that they were having a really hard time with like, CRM compliance and it's like how do you get them to do that and I was like well maybe you should uh put the sh you know, shoe on the other foot and th have some empathy for the buyer and you're like clearly like yes you could be like more dictatorial to it but like it has to be that part of the reason they're not doing this is they're not actually getting any value out of it in their process like whatsoever and so you need to ask yourself you're like why is that not delivering any value for them um absolutely yeah. yeah. And I think that that's one of these things where if you, you go and ask a seller, you know, what do you actually do in Salesforce and, 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 and you know, pick on Salesforce just because it's, it's more mm -hmm. familiar. But if you actually look at the, the sales job, very little of it happens in Salesforce. Maybe you do CPQ, um, you kind of enter your notes and stuff like that, but it's really kind of backwards looking. Um, and it's really not a, a, a product that's built to help an account executive sell. And, and I think that's, you know, it, it's probably a common refrain, but I think there's there, there's something that's just fundamentally broken about that. Totally. I really liked your uh, thought process of like analyzing like in the salesperson's like day-to-day -day stack, like what can or should be automated. Because um, I, I wrote an essay a little while back. It was like, is, you know, are a lot of these jobs when it comes to LLMs, like are they going to be like a draftsman or engineer? Um, or is it going to be like a teller? And that like, it used to be if you were... Um, like a civil engineer or an architect, like you had an army of entry-level people tabulating by hand calculations, doing draft work and things like that for you. Um, or there are certain roles that actually like have expanded with that. I, I think the sales role, like we've seen a reduction in CS, we've seen a huge reduction in SDRs. Like I think it's probably going to collapse down to that very competent enterprise salesperson. Uh, it, it would be my guess, I think. Yeah, I, I share that view. I think this is another one of the things that we we learned and 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 have seen over the last you know call it year and a half was as companies started to uh, whatever phrase you want to use cut costs get more efficient uh, mm -hmm. get more lean um, I think what you we've sort of seen was um, 
and, and as we're talking to sellers, there was there was real frustration because you're looking at um, at sort of quotas and and annual numbers that were that were not changing. Meanwhile, um, sales team headcount was getting you know cut by thirty percent. Sales engineering was getting cut. SDRs were being cut. Um, all of a sudden, you know, you'd see these uh, these sales folks who in twenty twenty one would have you know maybe sixty eighty accounts that they cover. A lot of whom were inbound or sourced by SDRs. To now, um, hey, you've got two hundred accounts to cover, and by the way, you don't have as much SDR coverage anymore. So you're now responsible for outbound. And by the way, your number's not changing. So good luck. And and I think there was there was like there was this sense of of real kind of almost like disillusionment with the the whole uh, equation. And and I think that's something that we've seen across the board. And I and I think it's continued. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think you see that you know, this is for sales. It's it's across the board really. And and I do think that you know one of the things that we thought a lot about when we were when we were uh, first coming up with the idea for Poggio, and this this has has continued, and and I would say has gotten stronger. Is you know, are you are you in the business of automating a person away, or are you in the business of human amplification? And I think personally, I find the latter a lot more interesting. I think you there there's a lot of people, in, and there's obviously going to be big opportunities in automating people away in certain jobs, um, but I, I find that just from a a human perspective, a lot less interesting. And and I think the thing that I love about sales, as I was sort of talking about before, is at the end of the day, there's a handshake that happens and a delivery of a service and a value that's delivered. And you can get a lot of leverage into that process. But that handshake, like you don't handshake with a robot, you handshake with a person. And I think that's one of the things that's been really, really exciting about, about how this has developed for us. And and even just how we think about the market that we're playing and what this looks like in one, two, five, ten years. Love it. I think like tangentially an area that is like really ripe for disruption that needs to be fixed with that is like you're talking about a lot of angst and I've been part of that too. Um and, and you know, previous cycles where it's like since Sasbageddon kicked off and you've got similar targets to the board, but the reality on what people are buying has changed. There's seat contraction even at places at Salesforce, which is just like never has happened. Um, and yet, you know, the people that have a 50% variable comp, uh, like, yeah, it's just kind of interesting. Like I've, I've been through enough annual planning processes that it's like so divorced from reality in terms of what they can do. It's kind of like a figure it out thing. So I think in complementary to what you're doing, I think there's like a lot of room for creating actual predictive, uh, like, productivity models like rep productivity and getting signals and stuff to kind of complement what you're doing from like the rep perspective as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think they're, you know, that's the nice thing, the blessing and a curse, there's too much data. Um, but you know, if you can make sense of it, there's a lot, a lot you can do there. And I think there's, um, you know, there's, there's only going to be more and more products that throw off data, like ours included, like we will mm-hmm. also be exhaust for, for other <laughs> products that, you know, it's like these things build on each other and, and I think, um, you know, for those folks that can figure out a way to, to harness it, there's there's some like real, real advantages uh, to, to doing that well. Makes sense. So maybe like uh, zooming out uh, to get your perspective, you know, with the finance background and, you know, being it with one foot in the AI space. Um, it seems like we're maybe kind of entering a bit of a post-hype part of the generative AI cycle. Um I've kind of heard that some of these companies, you know, they had a, uh, they were told last year to give generative AI like a good look and the feedback we've given, or they've been told is like, we don't really necessarily have a 
a place for this in its current maturity, either B, it's not enterprise ready or C for larger enterprises, you know, you can have injection attacks and it's just not security ready. Like, what are you kind of seeing? Like, what's your take on kind of the, the hype cycle, like the Gartner curve? Yeah, I, I think I'd agree with that. I, you know, you see uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of publicity about AI. It's sort of, a, I think, one of the things that, that comes up a lot is most companies have some sort of board mandate to figure out how to use AI to make things better. Um, a lot of the uh, sort of planning on those sort of mandates ends shortly after that declarative statement. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of desire to harness these tools. I think people are dabbling, there's budget for dabbling. I think we are really, really early in the adoption cycle. And I think it's sometimes hard for people to realize that because they've seen all the dollars that are going into it. And you see these big numbers quoted. I think the thing that's pretty interesting about that is, is the majority of that revenue and the kind of budgets and things like that we've seen. And, you know, you look at open AI's run rate, you know, they're, they're making a lot of money, but, but a lot of this stuff is kind of at the infrastructure layer and it's build up of, of, you know, training and capacity and the LLMs themselves. And if you actually look at the, the kind of net new applications that leverage AI at the core, there's really only been about a year that you could even be building these things. <laughs> and so I right. think when you look at it from that point of view and you look at the kind of end user value that's going to accrue, like I don't even think that game has really started. Um, and so I think there's, there's a lot to come there. And, and, and the one thing I will say is there is a lot of desire, and, but there are a lot of question marks. Even though you know, we talk about this internally all the time, it's like the nouns and the verbs for how you use AI don't even exist. And so I think you, you, there's just so much market development to happen. Uh, I think the, the one thing that, that I, I do, do really believe, though, is that you know, the, the thing that's different about this than was different than the last generation of cloud um, is that you're really talking about amplifying the ability for people to do their jobs. And it's not just a, you know, a Salesforce seat tax, that's this flat fee that you pay for everyone. It's like, look, you can actually go and show this makes you 30% more productive. You added X number of new opportunities. Your deals are closing faster. Like this process used to take every single sales rep for every single deal, five hours and like, boom, click a button that took 90 seconds. And then they get and go spend 10 minutes making it better. And so you really do have these dramatic uh, improvements to, to process in the day to day. And so I think, you know, people, people are getting glimpses of that. And, and that's where a lot of the, the kind of appetite for these solutions comes from. But as far as deployment, I think we're in like, you know, the first inning, the top of the first inning just started. Totally. I think it's tricky, just, you know, any relatively general purpose technology, it's like, where do you put it? You know, it's like saying like, oh, our board is telling us to make use of electricity. You know, like, what do you do with that? Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, I mean, the thing I think is so cool about what you guys are doing that it's just like it, it clicks immediately. You're like, okay, when I was a seller or supporting sellers, it's just like, oh, I know the pain about doing a really thorough job of preparing for your call, doing your territory mapping and stuff. It's like straightforward. I think like as these use cases are applied, it like makes more sense. But yeah, Carletta Perez and her um, her pretty famous book, it's like Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital, I think it's called, just talks about these like adoption curves and pretty much the premise is whether it's the railroad or electricity or whatever, it draws in so much capital on the hype cycle. The majority of those businesses crash all of the, you know, the, the O one tech crash, but all that hype and investment laid the infrastructure groundwork for the future, you know? So we still have fiber in the ground from 
yeah. from that. You know, you've got all this railroad coverage from that. Like, I, I kind of think that all the VC money sloshing around because they missed out on the big players in this round, like, will kind of be planting the seed for something we'll see run for, you know, 20, 50 years. It's going to be awesome. So, yep, I, I agree. Obviously, uh, you know, I alluded to it a little earlier, but um, you've been kind of not like building in public per se, but, you know, engaging on LinkedIn. Yeah. Like, how have you been finding that uh, going and uh, how are you avoiding how are you avoiding the cringe trap? Uh, so I'm I'm asking all my friends and family to help keep me honest on the cringe trap because, uh, you know, you, I, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but I don't think it's a LinkedIn poster. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think it, it's actually been a lot of fun. I think one of the one of the core principles of of how we've been building Podio is 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 really centered around like we want to build a product that sales reps love. Um, and I think love is, is kind of a funny word to use about software, but, um, but I, I, you know, people have started to say about our product, which is, which is awesome. You know, you, you build a, a, an AI product for sellers and someone says, Hey, I love that it changes the way I work. Like, I think that that's been, been really energizing, but, but the way you get there is by talking to a lot of sales reps and that's calls, that's text messages. That's just, you know, posting things on LinkedIn and seeing like, look, what, what do you hate about your job? Um, and what, what we've kind of found is that a lot of the things that people hate about their job are things that are repetitive. They don't feel like they add a lot of value. They're things that, Hey, my boss told me to do this. Um, the kind of like ingredients to build, you know, a, a good example is sort of account planning. I think people pretty universally don't like account planning, not because of the concept of the account plan, but because of the work that goes into it. And the fact that you're kind of told to do it and then it doesn't really serve you for the rest of the year uh, it kind of sits on the shelf. And so, but when you actually look at the things that go into building these, whether it's an account plan or a, you know, a PowerPoint presentation to go walk your customer through, you know, the, the process is really valuable. The underlying, like, I'm going to go Google for four hours to figure out what this company has announced. That is not fun. Uh, and so it turns out that a lot of those things that are really boring to people, the rote tasks that are just like kind of mind numbing, the LLMs are great at that, which is uh, kind of a nice, nice little coincidence there. And so, you know, one of the things that, that we've tried to do is really just go out and talk to sales reps and, and, you know, sales reps live in a lot of places, but most of them spend a good amount of time on LinkedIn. And so, so that, that's where, you know, we've, we've done a, done a conscious job of just, you know, spending time there because that's where we get the feedback. Makes sense. Yeah. It's uh it's a place you don't want to spend a lot of time, but you, you end up, uh, yeah, spend a lot of time on LinkedIn as sales or GTM for sure. So cool. Um, well, uh, I know just, you don't have to dip too much into personal life, but, uh, I know you and I met each other through cycling and, um, you know, if you know, you know, but for those of whom that don't, um, uh, the name of your company is kind of an homage to a famous climb in cycling. Um, what effect has cycling had on your life, uh, in terms of being a founder and work and otherwise? Yeah. Uh, Quite a big effect, actually. Um, I think, you know, for me, there's there's just countless lessons from cycling that apply. I see them everywhere. Uh, once you once you kind of get them in your head, you see them in work, you see them in life, you, all these all these different places. But I think for me, you know, one of the one of the things that, you know, as a founder is is hard is there's like a lot of ups and downs and you really have to think long term and you have to be uh patient when patience is the right answer. And then you have to be aggressive when, you know, certain things present themselves. I, you know, a, the emergence of AI, I would say, is an example of, of the latter. You know, the, the, you know, the time 
to strike or, you know, the time to, in cycling terms, attack, um, you know, kind of uh, presents itself. And, you know, if you, um, if you haven't been preparing for that, uh, you're going to miss it. Right. And I think with, with cycling, the, you know, people is kind of one of these fairly esoteric sports, I would say. And, and, but, but I think a lot of it, look, it's an endurance sport. You got to go ride for six hours and, and, you know, the, you can win or lose a race based on what happens at hour five minute 37. And, um, you know, if you miss it for 30 seconds, you could lose a race. And, and so it's really about preparedness and, and really just listening to yourself and trusting yourself. Um, and, and looking at the finish line, which is, you know, the, the homage to the Poggio, it, it's really all about that. It's, it's, you know, what, what's your goal in, in making sure you don't blow yourself up too early before you get there or, or break a frame in half <laughs> or break a frame in half. <laughs> all right. Um, so, um, great. So, you know, we'll do a kind of wrap up here with a final couple questions, but, um, what advice, you know, whether when you were on the investing side of the table or as a founder, do you find to be generally like bad advice? So I think a lot about this often because when I got into venture capital, it was pretty funny because uh, I think I was 24 at the time and I, you know, I'd been an investment banker and then all of a sudden you show up as a VC and you've got this business card and this $1.2 billion fund behind you. And then all of a sudden these entrepreneurs like ask you for advice. And they listen to you. I was like, well, yesterday I was an investment banker and today I have this business card and all of a sudden my advice is valuable. And quite honestly, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, and, and the reason I bring that up is because I, I actually find that the majority of pretty tailored or specific advice that you hear about startups is generally wrong. And it's wrong because it's an overfit. And I've, I've actually found that the majority of advice is really kind of like frameworks for decision-making and questions. Um, and I think this is, you know, uh, one of the things that, that, you know, when you have a, a board as a company is just phenomenally valuable is just having a literally a sounding board say like, Hey, here's what we're thinking of. Like, what do you think? And good board members usually tell you what they think. They'll give you some anecdotes maybe, and then they leave you to go make the decision. And so I actually just cringe a lot of the time when I go back and read a lot of startup advice, because even if it's right, for someone in some specific scenario, the chances of it being right for you in your scenario are, are like pretty slim. And so I found that a lot of startup advice that you read online is just, it's just a massive overfit and to the point that it's, it's, it's just not helpful at best and, and can often be destructive. Totally. Makes sense. Beware of the advice coming from the, uh, the Patagonia vest crew, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, actually like as a quick tangent, like what are your thoughts on like assembling a board now that you've both assembled one, you've been on the other side. Like I've heard a lot of advice on what works, what's not. Do you have any heuristics or metal like rules of thumb you like? So I would say, you know, having a board, um, people have, have different takes on this. I think, especially if you kind of roll the clock back, maybe three years, uh, the, the 2021 days and there was, you would read a lot of advice of, you know, hey, get as much money as you can, take as little dilution as you can, and avoid board members. Um, that was that was something that a lot of people would tell you. We we sort of you know we did raise money in in twenty twenty one, but we kind of took the opposite approach. Is like, give me the board member. Like I, I want good board members because mm -hmm. we're here to build something long, and 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 I want the hard questions, right? Like the longer you avoid the hard questions, the worse off you are. Um, and so for us, it was really around just really having people that were bought into the future of the company. And there's there's really no better way than getting smart people on your board. 
the flip side of that is, you know, you get the wrong folks on your board and it can add a lot of friction to everything that you do across the company. And so uh, obviously not something to be taken lightly, but I'm, I'm, you know, now two and a half years into this, I, I, I think our decision, at least in my view, has, has really paid off because it, it forces you to, you know, answer the hard questions and you're going to have to answer them sometime. And so, you know, maybe you have some of those uncomfortable conversations early. Um, but that's what we're here for. It's not supposed to be easy. And so, you know, you want, you want those people on your side and, and also honestly to, to help develop that relationship over the years, because, you know, it, like when you start to get into the growth stages and, and some of these decisions that you make, it, it's awesome to have rapport with folks over years that really know, you know, your working style rather than, you know, eventually you can add a board member at the, you know, at the growth stage and, and you got to get up to speed. So I think having people that have seen you operate and seen how you make decisions over a long period of time is, is actually tremendously helpful. Makes sense. Very cool. Okay, great. Well, that's, that's it for me, Matt. Um, if for those of whom that are sellers, sales leaders, or like operators uh, listening that want to learn more, how can they best get a hold of you um, to learn more about Poggio Labs? Best thing is you can go add me on LinkedIn. I spend way too much time there or just shoot me an email, matt at pogeolabs.com. Love it. Okay, Matt, thanks for the time. Thanks, Stuart.